We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha and welcome to the Layman's Lounge podcast, a ministry of the laymanslounge.com, where we exist to bring everyday theology to encourage Christians for everyday life. And on the other line is Dr. Guy Prentice Waters. Aloha, brother. Aloha. Thanks for having me. Is it Prentice? That's my middle name. That's right. It, tell me how that tell me how mom thought of Prentice. They're like, how about Prentice? Yes. Well, the my first name is my great-great-grandfather's name on my mother's side. My middle name is my great-great-grandfather's name on my father's side. So I don't know what kind of um, negotiations were involved, but I bring the two families together in my first and second name. You, you united the clans. Well That's done. <laughs> Dr. Waters is professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary, RTS. Uh, prior to arriving there in RTS Jackson in 2007, he spent a year teaching Hellenistic Greek at Duke Divinity School. Uh, he's a teaching elder in the Mississippi Valley Presbytery of the PCA. And his favorite 90s song is? Oh, it depends on when you catch me. But, <laughs> um, it, it is not, it's technically not a 90s song, but it's almost a 90s song. It would be Sonic Youth's Teenage Riot from their 87 release, Daydream Nation. What? Are you a bit of a hipster? Well, I, I tell you, I, I, I confess, I caught on to Sonic Youth after they got popular. So I'm maybe that makes me a poser. <laughs> Give me I wasn't someone part of the, the New York underground in the 80s, but um, there it is. Maybe it makes me a poser. Give me something else that you like from back then. Are you were you into like indie rock or punk rock or like smashing pumpkins or you know I, I did. I I listened to to that whole scene. Um I, I won't confess to the Pearl Jam album that I own, but yeah, there was Smashing Pumpkins, Nirvana, of course. Um, and then my wife was more uh, Natalie Merchant, Indigo oh. Girls. And, and so she got me more into the indie scene, oh, uh, which yeah. I like very much. That yeah. stuff's good. The wives love that. I got a 90s wife. Yeah, they love that. All that. Uh, remember Frente? Like they were from Australia or something. Mm -hmm. Frente, that was good. You know what? I'm linking Natalie Merchant and Frente and the Sonic Youth on these show notes. Excellent. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, Dr. Waters is the author and contributor and editor of a slew of books. And so I'm going to name a few here. Um, first one here, Justification and the New Perspectives on Paul, a Review and Response. Next one. The Lord's Supper as the sign and meal of the new covenant, which is part of Crossway's short studies on biblical theology series, which everyone loves. Those are so good. Uh, next one here, the federal vision and covenant theology, a comparative analysis, which I wish we could do an interview just on that. Um, and then he's one of the editors and contributors of, alongside with the faculty at Reformed Theological Seminary, Crossways six of six hundred and seventy-two pager, uh, covenant theology, biblical, theological, and historical perspectives. Who got like the last choice? 
who was stuck like on the like all right i guess give that to you know give that to swain or how did that work <laughs> well i'll give you the genesis of it um so rts celebrated our 50th anniversary uh back in 2006 2007 and so uh we worked with crossway to put out two volumes a biblical theological survey of the Old Testament, a biblical theological survey of the New Testament. And we were pleased with what Crossway did. Crossway was, was happy with what we did. So our chancellor, Ligon Duncan, who has had a passion for covenant theology for years and years, very much wanted to see a faculty volume on covenant theology. We, we've got 40-odd full-time faculty members ranging the disciplines, a lot of uh, gifts that are spread abroad uh, within RTS. And uh, covenant theology is something that's near and dear to, to the heart of uh, Reformed theology. Um, it can be harder than you might think to try to find good and current and, and balanced resources uh. on covenant theology. So he thought, what if we were to draw together um, the strengths of our faculty, put together a volume that would be a help to the church? And so he invited me, he invited uh, Nicholas Reed and John Meather, who serve with me in RTS, to um, put all of this together, uh, working with him. And so over a period of, of a couple of years, we crafted this volume. Crossway was kind enough to publish it. And it's been out now, I guess, six months or so. And um, initial reports have been encouraging and hope that it will be a, a service to the church. Yeah. Which, so by the way, we're going to give away a copy of the book, thanks to Crossway. So just like post your favorite quote or point or joke from this interview. Um, or your favorite 90s song, um, tag us, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or whatever. Um, okay, here's one for you, brother. In your own life, mm -hmm. as you're like commuting to work or like barbecuing, just looking around at the world and th thinking about your creator, mm -hmm. in what ways has covenant theology enriched your your day-to-day -day as you encounter, you know, the hopes and the fears of all the world? Right. Well, great question. You know, covenant theology points us to the fact that, that God relates to us by way of covenant. Now, covenant isn't really a word that gets used much in day-to-day in -day speech and life. You, you still get glimpses of it from uh, time to time and place to place, but uh, at the heart of a covenant is God committing himself to us. He, he makes promises. He uh, does what he says. And so the heart of covenant theology is to show us the way in which and how God is committing himself to us in Christ. Mm. So the, the knowledge that as a believer in Christ, I am entirely secure and what that does in my life, it doesn't mean, great, I can go live and do as I please. It stirs me to respond in, in gratitude, in obedience to this God. I, I want to walk with him. I want to be like his son. 
I, I want to think his thoughts after him. I want to please him. And covenant theology is the, the framework in, in which I can think about living life that way. Nice. So is the, the principle of covenant theology something that a Bible reader could easily or difficultly glean from while they're assuming this reader is like actively engaging their Bibles uh, and doing so like apart from secondary sources. Mm -hmm. I know it's a super random, that scenario wouldn't happen, but you know, if you know the guy all alone on the desert Island. Mm -hmm. That's right. So I, I think we, we could get at that from a couple of angles. One is that when you read the Bible, you're going to see that word covenant in many places, start to finish. Mm -hmm. Every time as Christians, we observe the Lord's Supper in the church, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So this, this is a covenant meal, the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3, we are ministers of a new covenant. We see in the Old Testament, God makes covenants with his people. There's a covenant with Noah in Genesis 6 and 9. There's a covenant with Abraham a little, little bit later. There's a covenant with Israel through Moses. There's a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. The prophets all speak of a new covenant. So covenant is this wonderful thread that runs through the scripture. And covenant theology has said, Look, even though the word covenant is not used in the garden, what God is doing with Adam there is he, he's making a covenant with Adam before the fall. And that helps us to understand God's purposes in history and in our lives. Because when we go to Romans chapter five, what Paul tells us is that Adam should have obeyed God and that he would have won blessing for himself and for humanity by his obedience. But of course, Adam's sin, we sinned in him and fell with him. Christ is the last Adam, and he not only pays the penalty for our sins, his people, but he is also obeyed where we disobeyed. Yeah. And he wins life for us and freely gives life to us. So Everything Jesus does for us is covenantal. And so the whole of scripture, God is preparing the way for Jesus. God is doing the work of redemption in Jesus. That's all covenant. So in, in the fine grained details and in the big picture, we see covenant all over the place. That's the story of scripture, creation, fall, and redemption. And we could even go back even farther um, Reformed theologians have said, look, if, if you look at what Jesus says, for instance, in John's gospel, he gives us a window into the way that Father, Son, and Spirit were planning and preparing to carry out our salvation in eternity. Mm. And that's covenantal. Mm. So we, we can think about covenant and our salvation, not just in history, but in the, the purposes of God mm. in eternity. Mm. So covenant is something, anytime we pick up our Bible, even if the word is not there, it's never far away. And whether we realize it or not, the, the whole 
story of scripture, creation, fall, redemption is something that is covenantal. So covenantal, whether you're a, a, a trained specialist or whether you're a non-specialist who, who's reading the Bible as every Christian does, a covenant is something that's gonna help you see what holds the Bible together and, and what is gonna help make sense of our Christian lives. So do you think like sort of a, like a busy mom who um, she might be a, just a, a part of a, you know, like a, like a non-denominational church or something. So she's probably not really hearing this, but she's like an avid Bible reader. Mm-hmm. What she, she, pro- she probably wouldn't coin the term, you know, like federal, right. Cause it's like from the Latin word or whatever, or even covenant theology proper, but what, what like raw um, rudimentary truths like do you think that she would have in her mind and what are the specific ones that that covenant theology really goes out of their way to to like nuance and draw out the implications yes well the heart the, the covenant principle the heart of covenant theology it's it's in these words that god says again and again in scripture i will be your god and you will be my people. I mean, that's covenant theology in a nutshell. Mm. So for, for, this, for this mom who's uh, faithfully raising her family, serving the Lord, to know this God is my God. He is for me in Jesus Christ. Mm. And then because he is for me, I am for him. He has taken me to be in fellowship with mm. him. And so my whole life is lived quorum Deo in the presence of God, whether it's changing a diaper or buying tuna at the grocery store or getting the car fixed or going to a Bible study. Mm. All of that is done quorum Deo. What a good God. Uh, How do we see covenant theology like in, in seed form, if you will, amongst the church, maybe prior to Augustine? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, covenant theology is something, you know, as, as you rightly say, that, that took on its uh, mature form later in church history. You get a leap forward in, in Augustine, you, and then you get a huge leap forward in the Reformation and the time afterwards. But <clears throat> covenant was very much in the minds and in the writings of the earliest church fathers, for the simple reason that they were readers of their Bible. And it, it wasn't as, as nuanced and fine-tuned as it would be today, but it was very much there, that core covenant principle, hmm. and recognizing that God is, has always dealt with his people by way of covenant. Hmm. So it's not like this was invented in the 1600s, This has always been with the people of God from the very beginning. It's matured, it's refined, but it's always been there. And and we have have historical chapters in this book for interested readers where where you can trace those lines of development. You can see where uh, church fathers and and those after them saw covenant and recognized, you know, covenant is a big part of the teaching of scripture. Mm, mm, mm. In the foreword to the book, Ligon Duncan opens by saying, quote, reformed theology is covenant theology, end quote. 
So I, I think the fact that it really, you know, like you were saying, sort of like came to its own in Reformation causes people to really want to like tread lightly, you know? And, and so as you meant, as you mentioned in the intro, that quote, Many other Protestants, I think you were talking about John, John MacArthur, and then you said, many other Protestants have resisted the vocabulary and the categories that are employed in covenant theology. Elaborate covenant schemes appear too detailed and abstract for them. And so where I, like for me personally, I might not end up where John MacArthur or like M Michael Byrd end up. I can see the conviction to tread lightly. Can you just speak to that? Like I, I, again, I don't, agree where they end up but like about that just sort of wanting to not yeah sure well i think a couple thoughts and the first one is that covenant theology is not parochial it's it's not something that is uniquely the possession of reformed theology it it is small c catholic so it is something that runs across the mm. christian tradition it is something that's, that has surfaced throughout the history of the church. And as I've, I've been uh, stressing, you know, because people read their Bibles, you can't get away from covenants and a covenant theology. So we would very much wanna say, this is part of our common heritage as Christians. It's not something we jealously hold on to uh, in, in the reformed tradition. Um, our our pride, if, if we can put it that way, is that we've, um, we've given a lot of thought to it and, and we think that there have been some advances in the last three or 400 years uh, that, that helped to build on and extend what was there, but not to do something that was different from what came before. The second thing I'd wanna say is that um, there are uh, true, sincere, fruitful believers who would, would differ with me in my convictions about covenant theology. They, they would of course recognize their covenants in scripture, but they wouldn't see it as an overarching framework in, in the, the teaching of scripture. They might look to, to dispensations, they might look to something else. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we first would wanna say, we're not saying this is an issue of if, if you're if you believe in covenant theology, you're a Christian. If you don't, you're not a Christian. Of course, we don't say that. Mm -hmm. Well, what's the importance of covenant theology? Well, what covenant theology does is it gives us the framework to understand the gospel in, in its integrity and in its power. Mm. So we're not saying you don't have the gospel if you don't have covenant theology, but what covenant theology does is it helps you to grasp the riches of the gospel and the reach of the gospel yeah. across the whole teaching of scripture and across the whole of the life of the church and of the Christian life. Mm. So why we're so zealous for fellow believers to have covenant theology is we don't want them to miss out on these treasures. There are, there are great things here that they cherish with us and we want them to have them as much as we have been uh, by God's grace allowed to happen. So uh, I think uh, there's kind of an idea that there's either like covenant theology or dispensationalism or whatever. Can you speak to if someone isn't, it doesn't uh, operate under this idea of covenant theology, 
Um, let's just, again, let's just think of like a, maybe a, you know, sort of a non-denominational Bible reader, you know, mm-hmm. what are they, you, like here in America, what, what are some of the, the ways that um, sort of the rank and file are you, what are they operating under maybe without even knowing what it's labeled or called and what are, and where does covenant theology sort of uh, might be a better route than those, those uh, the routes that they're on? Sure. So um, let's, let's take dispensationalism just as, as an illustration, because that, that has been a, a big part of American Christianity and, and Christianity in other parts of the world. And my dispensational brothers, they, they love the scripture. They hold to the authority of scripture. They love Jesus Christ. They exalt the cross. And I, I bless God for them, and I bless God for their, their, their faithfulness to Jesus Christ and him crucified. But there are differences. And <clears throat> I think the differences, without getting too technical, would, would fall along a couple of lines. So a covenant theologian, and it's the, the covenant theology of, of the kind that we argue for in the book, classical reform covenant theology, would say that God divides history into covenants and those covenants follow one after the other. Dispensationalists would say that God divides history into dispensations and they follow each other one after the other. Well, if I just stop there, you might say, well, then this is just disagreements about words. Aren't you just talking about the same thing? Well, I I don't think we are for a couple of reasons. For one thing, what's at the heart of a dispensation? And the answer is always a test. So God makes a test, people flunk the test, and then God goes on to the next dispensation. And that's why the dispensations aren't really connected to each other. They just, they follow one another. Whereas covenants, God in making those covenants, he ensures that his his purpose gets done. And so in those covenants, he's coming to sinners and he is making promises and he is calling us to live in light of those promises. He's giving us encouragements, signs connected to those promises, blessings uh, connected with those promises and and threats connected uh, with disobedience. And then every covenant within the history of redemption builds on itself. So one illustration that's been used uh, time and again in at the very beginning Genesis chapter three, very first promise of the gospel, where where God says to Adam and Eve, look, from Eve is going to come an offspring, and that offspring, his heel will be bruised, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And that is in seed form, a gospel promise. Jesus Christ is going to defeat Satan and death and all evil. So that seed over time is going to grow into a sapling and that sapling is going to become a young tree, and then it's going to become a mature tree. But it's the same plant. It's just growing and maturing. So what we're seeing as we go from one covenant to the next is the same set of promises 
being extended and expanded and growing and growing, you know, until we get to the new covenant, until we get to Jesus Christ. And as Paul says, all of God's promises are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. Mm. So covenants are not just a way, they're not chapter dividers in the Bible only. They're ways to help us trace the unfolding purpose of God to save sinners through Jesus Christ. So like for, for just your average Bible reader, you know, with that train of thought of just covenant theology is the, as they're bringing this, you know, if we call it like a hermeneutical method in this instant of coming to the the text and as they come across something, um, whatever it might, whatever it might be, for example, say just something in the old Testament is, is their task to glean the most from the text to say, oh, this is an acorn or, oh, this is the sapling or like, so in other words, what do they, once they sort of see what you're saying that, that it's a, you know, it's this, it's in seed form growing, if you will. Um, what do they do with that as they come and specifically are reading their Bibles? Right. Well, let, let's take an example and, and this example would be completely uncontroversial among Christians. As Christians, we know we, God does not command us to circumcise our male infants. Mm-hmm. And that's something that was worked out while the apostles were still alive. <laughs> now, we all know instinctively not to do that. But here's the, here's the question. Why don't we do that? Well, certainly because the New Testament tells us you don't have to do that for as a, as a command of God, not talking about hygiene or anything else. But let's say you're, you're living in the days of Abraham or in the days of Moses. Well, God says, if you don't circumcise your male infants, you're going to be cut off from your people. You're going to be cursed. So <clears throat> something has changed going from the days of Abraham and Moses, that is the covenant that God made with Abraham, and then the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses that builds on that, Mm. something has changed coming into the new covenant. And and of course, the, the, the difference is that Christ has come, he has fulfilled what circumcision pointed to, and now God no longer requires circumcision of his people. Uh, that's why we, we baptize rather than circumcise. So there's an example of something we all do instinctively. Why do we not circumcise? Because I don't live back then under that covenant. Mm-hmm. I, I'm living now mm-hmm. under the new covenant. And so anytime we're reading the Bible, we always need to, to pause for station identification. What covenant am I in? You know, I'm reading it with the benefit of hindsight. I've read the whole book. I've read the whole story. But the people who were living there, Mm. they only knew as much as God had revealed to them. So what did God want them to do? And and how were the promises and the commands and and the signs, how were they all pointing them to Mm. Jesus Christ? Mm. And that really opens up the scripture. Uh, we, We see it as a fulfilled book, but we can also look at the details and ask in in any given place what were the people of god 
supposed to be believing? And what were they supposed to be doing? And, and how was all of this pointing them towards Jesus? Right. That was good. The pausing for station identification is good. That's a good one. Um, but I, I might have sort of already asked this question, but I just want to say it again. So say you have a, a faithful Bible reader and, um, and they read the Bible as like a, a, just sort of the story of God, like just this unfolding story of redemption. Right. And they don't, they don't know if they, be, if they are operating in a, you know, covenantal or not, but they just see, all right, they have sort of this robust doctrine of creation. They might not think, oh, like, um, before creation, there had, had been a covenant amongst the Trinity or what they just might say, okay, it looks like, uh, cre creation was good. There it was. It was good. If they had continue, I'm not quite sure what would have happened. Um, maybe, you know, but it definitely looks like we'll just jump ahead to revelation and maybe something like that would have sort of happened possibly. I don't know. Um, but then they go ahead and they say, well, it seems, um, that God's mode of, 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 um, getting people right with him so that he might dwell with them was, you know, the, the law, if you will. And then, but it turns out those are all shadows. Um, and then when we get, you know, uh, to Jesus, we see that those were shadows on the road to, to Emmaus and all these things. So what I just said there, um, I would maybe call that sort of maybe even creation, fall, redemption, restoration, if you will, mm -hmm. is what I just said covenant theology yeah i think what you have just described would would be at a at a very basic rudimentary level what covenant theology would explain at a more elaborate mm. fuller mm. and technical level mm. so you know covenant theology is is going to be the, the glorious architecture um to, to that foundation. And <clears throat> at, going back to a point I, I mentioned earlier, if you hold to that foundation, look, that's great, you're, you're a Christian. And I understand there are Christians who, who, who wouldn't um, embrace covenant theology, but would hold to that creation, fall, redemption, consummation foundation, and, and praise God for that. But what covenant theology does is it helps put all the pieces in place. It makes sense. It helps you to see the parts in relation to the whole. And it, it's not telling you something other than that, but it's helping you to see it in its fullness. That's good. Here's two fun questions from one of our listeners named Emmanuel Boston. So, <laughs> so here they go. Which came first, the covenant with the son to dwell with his church? Mm -hmm. Or the covenant with the son to redeem lost sinners? Mm. <laughs> Boy. Uh, or, I or can God make a martini so big he can't drink it? <laughs> well, here, you know, here's the great thing. So we're, we're all uh, delving into mystery here. But as we think back into eternity, um, you know, God, the, the end game is that that God is, is glorifying his, his triune self through the redemption of sinners in Jesus Christ. And he takes them to be his people. So when God sets his love upon sinners, 
God has chosen us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. I have loved you with an everlasting love. You know, for, for that love um, to carry through to its conclusion, then those sinners are going to have to be redeemed. And then that's going to bring in the work of Jesus Christ. And, and that's why Paul can say on the one hand, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. He's speaking very personally to the Galatians. But he can also say to the Ephesians in chapter 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So there's, there's a people who has been redeemed. Individual Christians have been redeemed because the end goal is that this redeemed people would dwell in the presence of God, would be with God forever. So all of these are just to, to put it um, in, in a, you know, not saying this is how God thinks about the matter, but it's how we think about the matter. I mean, these are interconnecting parts. Mm. These are are spokes that are connected to one another and and no wheel turns without the other wheel turning. All right, one more from Emmanuel here. It's if God's eternity, if God's eternity means that he's outside of time, not just before time, do reformed people place too much emphasis on his eternal past? Oh my. <laughs> Boy, Emmanuel is making me earn my keep today. <laughs> These are good questions. Um, no, I think here's the, here's the value in a word of why it is so important to be rooting God's um, covenants and everything that he has done for us in his eternal purpose. It, it's a line that comes from a sermon of Gerhardus Voss, and he says, God never stopped, God will never stop loving you because he never started. And his point is that God's love will never fail. It's never going to come to an end because it has no beginning. God has always loved us from before the foundation of the world. So I, I think that if we're if we're delving into speculation and abstraction. Yes, that is a misuse of um, thinking about what the scripture says about the eternity of God. But if we're rooting what God has done for us in, in his character, in his being, then, then that is, is the best use, because that helps us to see how, how wide and broad his love is to us. There you go, Emmanuel. Send him some edible arrangements and Sonic Youth on vinyl. Um, what, so <clears throat> what are the, the three covenants that make up covenant theology? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So typically three covenants, uh, let me name them and then I'll just talk through them. Uh, there's covenant of redemption, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. So let, let me take them in reverse order. So the covenant of grace is going to run from the very first announcement of the gospel in Genesis 3, verse 15, that, that promise to Adam and Eve in the garden after they had sinned, all the way to the end of Revelation. And, and that is the covenant that God makes 
that will administer his promise to save sinners through Jesus Christ and in the power of the spirit. And that's going to run from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22. Back of that is the covenant of works. In Genesis chapter 2, God comes to Adam in paradise and says, look, I've given you every tree in this garden and you can eat of it. But there's, there's one tree, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it. On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And Adam was created holy and, and righteous. But in, in ways I think we, we can't fully explain, Adam sinned against God. You know, how can a righteous man sin against God? I, I can't answer that. I just know that he did. And <clears throat> when he sinned, he died. Now, he didn't drop dead right away. He did eventually die. But, but death has many layers. There, there's physical death. But there's, there's also eternal death. And, and we know that when Adam sinned, he tried to hide himself from God, and so did Eve. And then God sent them out of the garden. He, he didn't want fellowship, and, and God barred them from his presence. So God had created people to be in fellowship. And when Adam broke the covenant of works, and he didn't just break it for himself, he, he broke it for us because he's a representative, then he brought death, physical, biological, spiritual, eternal, on himself and his descendants. And that's the, the mercy of the covenant of grace. God says, um, look, I could bring the curtain down right now, but I'm not. I, I'm going to save sinners through my son. And here's the connection between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Let's, let's just do a thought experiment. What if Adam had obeyed God? Well, if Adam had obeyed God, the outcome would not have been death. It would have been life. Well, yes, wasn't he already alive? Wasn't he already with God? Well, he was, but he would have experienced confirmed life. He, he'd never lose it. And heightened life. He, he would have experienced for himself and his, his posterity, all, everybody he's representing, he, he would, they would have experienced depths of fellowship and communion with God that he had not experienced yet in the garden. But of course, thought experiment is over. That didn't happen. Now, enter Jesus Christ, who is the last Adam, so we have two problems in Adam. We're, we're guilty of sin and, and under bondage to sin, and we have failed to enter life. And Jesus Christ solves both those problems. In his uh, death, he pays the penalty of sin. He breaks the dominion of sin. And then in his life, he wins for us everlasting life and fellowship with God. So the covenant of grace is a covenant of grace to you and to me because it was first a covenant of works to Jesus. Yeah. He stepped in and did 
what we should have done, but failed to do. And he took the penalty that we deserve, but will never receive if we trust in him because justice has been answered at the cross of Calvary. So that's how the covenant of works and covenant of grace tie together. And then when we go behind that into eternity, we talk about the covenant of redemption. This is the father saying to the son, these beloved ones, these chosen ones, I give them to you, they're your sheep. And the son says, I will redeem them. I will live for them. I will die for them. And the father says, when, when you do that, I will reward you as, as their representative with life and glory. And Jesus says, yes, and I'll, I'll share that with them. And then the Holy Spirit says, I, I will go with the son. I will abide on his ministry. I will uh, raise him from the dead and I will communicate life and blessing to his people. And, and you see that if you read John's gospel, you see that all over the place uh, where, where Jesus is speaking to the father and, and he says, look, I've, I've obeyed you. I've done everything you've asked me to do. Now glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. And at the end of John 17, he says, this is what I want. I, I want them, these sheep to share in the glory that you've given to me. I mean, that's, that's just what we mean by the covenant of redemption. So just, just two sort of quick questions coming mm -hmm. off of that. The first one is what, where you, you know, you've just given us like a, a overview of like covenant theology. What is like sort of the biggest implication for a Christian when they see covenant theology? Like what, what is the thing that just like one of the main sort of things that just lands in is, is it either a comfort or whatever? And then the second part of that on the flip side, what, um, no, we'll just do that one. <laughs> Good. Um, Jonah two and many other places, salvation is of the Lord. Mm. Covenant theology teaches us that salvation is planned by God alone. It is accomplished by God alone. It is applied by God alone. And it helps us to see God in his triunity saving us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, one God in three persons, saving sinners. We, we are dead in trespasses and sins. We, we contribute nothing to our salvation except for sin. And God has mercy on us and he saves us and he does the work. And that doesn't mean we're left to do nothing. We don't contribute anything to our salvation. We don't add anything to our salvation. But part of our salvation is that God is uh, taking unholy people and he is making them more and more like his son, Jesus. Mm. And he is, he is doing that work in and through us. He is enabling us. He is at work in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So we have every assurance and confidence that God will finish what he starts. And that means we can, with all of our energies, all of our minds, all of our hearts, our bodies, we can fully serve God, knowing that our salvation is in his hands 
that our righteousness is not in ourselves. It's in Jesus Christ alone. And his righteousness is counted to me. Mm. And that's, that's my acceptance and pardon before God. And that will never change. And so nothing I'm doing in the Christian life changes the love of God for me because he has set his love on me. I have a powerful motivation to serve God in the Christian life because I want to experience his love and blessing more and more. I don't want him to be displeased with me. I want to see his smile just like any child wants to see yeah. his father's smile. So covenant theology brings together two important things. One is the rock solid security of our salvation, but also it helps us to see how we live the Christian life in a way that doesn't compromise the mm. rock solid security of our salvation. It holds those two things together. So I am completely secure in God and I am completely engaged to serve him with my all. Uh, that's that's the beauty of covenant theology. Absolutely. So where should we, um, where should we situate covenant theology just in, in our program, if you will? Like, okay, well, we, uh, we, we use biblical theology. We, we are aware of the law, uh, proper, properly distinguishing law and gospel. You know, we, where, where, like, where do we place what, what is the best usage of, of covenant theology? Should it like undergird everything? Should it, should it, right now, you know what I mean? Like, how do we operate in, how can we take the good things or where do we place them? And I asked that associated with this question, how does, um, earlier you said, you know, like a, of a mom changing diapers, quorum deo and whatever, where does covenant theology just hit sort of the, um, the regular sacred things like changing diapers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think in answer to your first question, covenant theology, and, and this is, I think, another part of the beauty of it, it, it hits everywhere. So it's, it's biblical theology. It helps us to see the, the unfolding message and themes of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It hits systematic theology because it helps us to understand God. Mm. It helps us to understand ourselves, helps us to understand our salvation, helps us to understand uh, the, the end of time. You know, where is history going? Where is it all going to lead? Helps us to understand the church. And <clears throat> it, it helps us with practical theology. How, how do we minister in the church? How do I live the Christian life? But covenant theology is going to speak into those in very powerful ways. So covenant theology, and that's part of the importance of it, touches on virtually every part of scripture's teaching about what we're to believe and how we're to live. And I think coming back to the, the example of the, the mom who's changing a diaper, uh, at two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, what covenant theology helps her to see is that I'm not just doing this because it has to be done. I mean, it does have to be done. Diapers have to be changed. And I, yes, I'm doing it because I love my, my daughter or my son who's in front of me. 
But as someone who belongs to God, this is what God has called me to do. And this is something that is pleasing to God as I do it in faith. And as I think about what he's done for me and who he is to me in Jesus Christ. And so there's not anything that I do as a, as a Christian. It doesn't matter if no one sees it. It doesn't matter if it's unimportant in the world's eyes. It doesn't matter how obscure it is. Everything that's done in the Christian life, it, in obedience to God, to the glory of God, it counts. It matters. And so that gives it significance. World doesn't look at changing a diaper as anything important. But when a believer does it, in, along the lines that we, we've been uh, discussing, then it takes on profound significance. So final question for you. This has been really good. Um, <clears throat> as we're just talking again of this. <clears throat> so I guess like sort of in the, in the forensic sense, since we're clothed with the, the, the second Adam, mm-hmm. we, like, we could almost, we know that I am his son with whom he's well pleased or, you know, this person's her, his daughter with whom he's well pleased. Mm-hmm. But there's also that sort of, <clears throat> I don't know what's called like a fatherly sense, right? Where <clears throat> we see we could like please him further or even grieve him at sometimes. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that portion of, cause who doesn't want to, con- so like, I know in the, in the courtroom of God, if you will, God's mm-hmm. pleased with me, but what about like, I want to please him constantly every single day. Um, but how does that not put me back on the rat, you know, the, and even if it comes from like a good desire of like, oh, he's my good dad. But like, how does one knock it down on themselves for when they're not successfully pleasing him every day or yeah. A great question. And I think covenant theology does help us here. Um, I think we go back to, to where you started that we are justified in Christ. We are counted righteous the righteousness is Christ's. It is counted to us. It's, it's not worked into us, infused into us. It, it is imputed, reckoned. And so that righteousness is perfect, unchanging, accepted. And when Paul says no condemnation, he means no condemnation. So I'm Amen. never going to fall out of justification into condemnation. If I'm justified, I'm going to be there forever. Mm. Now, <clears throat> I've been brought into the family of God, as you've said, daughters of the living God, sons of the living God. And it's the instinct of every child to please his father, just as it's the instinct of every father to delight in the child. So I think, you know, one way that we, we don't um, get caught up in a, um, a fruitless cycle of... Um, beating up on ourselves uh, needlessly is is to remember that that God is is pleased um, to accept us and to delight us in Jesus Christ. Um, we, We never get to the place where God's love and delight is earned or accomplished by what we do. And that that's something that we've got to lay hold of. Mm. We do want to please him and we do want to experience his, his smile and delight. And <clears throat> I think when we remember, look, um, if, 
my aim here in, in trying to please my father, I'm not trying to get a love I don't have. I'm trying to, to experience more of the love I already have in Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. Who wouldn't want that? Yeah. Um, and, you know, if, if, if our attitude is, well, hey, this is great. I can just, just go sin as I please. Then I think the, the Bible's response to that is, I'm not sure you understand the love of God and justification. But if, if your heart's desire is, is to, to respond in love, um, then, then even discipline of God, and, and Hebrews tells us that, that God disciplines his children. But I remember growing up, uh, you know, my father was not someone that you delighted in experiencing his discipline. But I never feared. I love my dad. I never worried that he was going to kick me out of the family. It, I, I was concerned that I had upset him and I knew there were going to be consequences. But I never worried that I was going to be booted out of the home. And it never happened. S same way with, with believers. We may displease the father, but in love, he's correcting us. He's, he's not kicking us out of the family. That's the response of faith to the discipline of God. So I think keeping those things together and around that covenant theology says God is committed to us for the long haul. He has committed himself. And that is a comforting and a freeing and a motivating truth to, to live before God. Amen. <clears throat> We've been chatting with Dr. Guy Waters. He's been dropping the bomb. Uh, the book is Covenant Theology, Biblical, Theological, and Historical Perspectives, um, Crossway 2020. I think it just came out in October, like you're saying. And like, like I mentioned, post something you guys gleaned from this interview or the book or your favorite 90s song. And on social media and tag us and we'll send a, a copy out in one week brother um you got anything else in the works or anything recently released i have have just uh, released a book on the doctrine of scripture uh, it's it's a, a more technical book uh and then i've got a, a couple books that are uh, working their way towards press um and i can tell you more about those maybe at another time but i'm on sabbatical so i've got lots of writing projects going on right on hey if you need emmanuel boston uh to proof those let us know thanks so much bro i really appreciate it it's been a delight thanks so much we came for salvation we came for family we came for all that's good, that's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad, we came to cheer the sad, we came to...